My name is Bev Anderson, and I'm a very grateful member of the Al-Anon family groups. I want to thank Craig and Deb for asking us to speak this weekend. Um, the town that Joe and I live in is the town that Craig and Deb uh, both grew up in. And before Craig and Deb got married, Deb was coming to Al-Anon and Imperial. And for a long time, Deb was the only Al-Anon coming to Al-Anon with me. And I had a little resentment towards Craig when he was going to marry her and move her up here because nobody else was going to be there for a while. Um, I'm happy to tell you that there are some more people coming to that Al-Anon group in Imperial. I have thoroughly enjoyed myself this weekend. Uh, Joe and I left Thursday and did some sightseeing, and we camped Thursday night before we got to Craig and Deb's. And you have a beautiful state. I have only been to Wyoming one time before. And I have also had a wonderful time attending somebody else's assembly. I have not ever had an opportunity to go to another area's assembly. And i got to tell you guys, I felt right at home today. You guys debate about the same stuff that we do at home. It, it was wonderful today. Um, one thing I want to do first before I go on is we have a young lady here tonight who has a birthday. She's 12. Would you stand up, Carly, let everybody know who you are? <laughs> Would you join me in singing happy birthday? Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Carly. Happy birthday to you. For those of you who may not know, Carly is Craig and Deb's daughter. Um, I'm going to do what my sponsor has always told me to do when I speak. She said, just tell it like it is. And um, first of all, I'm going to um, give myself membership to the Al-Anon Fellowship. Um, I grew up in a home uh, where alcoholism was uh, rampant by the time I came along. I am the youngest of six children. Um, the first four kids in my family came in the first five years of my parents' marriage. There's about an eight-year span, and a brother came along, and about four and a half years later, I came along. So the brother that's right ahead of me, him and I were somewhat like a second family. And when I listen to my older brothers and sisters talk about what they remember, what it was like growing up, it, sometimes I don't always identify with them because my, my father's drinking was different with them than it was with my brother and I that's right ahead of me. Um, they talk much more about uh, a verbal, uh, not an abusive father, but a much more verbal father, a little bit more mean than what I remember. Uh, my father's drinking pattern from the time I can remember was he would, he would drink for a period of time, and, you know, that period of time could have been a couple months, uh, maybe close to a year, and something always, always seemed to happen. Um, he had some accidents. Uh, one time he got picked up by the law. Uh, sometimes it would be a really ugly, ugly fight with my mom, and he always went to treatment. Um, my dad figured up one time, I think he told us like eight or 12 times he'd been to treatment throughout his life. I mean, something always happened. And he'd go to treatment for 30 days. And when he came home, um, sometimes he drank the day he got home from treatment. And other times he would be sober a couple months. Uh, there was one time he was sober 10 months. Um, but that is the pattern that continued um, in my home until I was 19. Um, that was just his drinking pattern. Um, I also need to tell you that I was a candidate for the Al-Anon family groups probably from the time I was born. Um, I learned at a very tender, tender age that my father felt guilty for his drinking. I never, ever remember anybody telling me that. I just somehow knew, somehow knew that he felt guilty for drinking, and I played on my father's guilt. 
I got Barbies, um, all kinds of toys. Uh, I got my ears pierced. One, my birthday's just a couple weeks before Christmas, and my father had gone to a mall to go Christmas shopping, and I went along with him, and I manipulated him into getting my ears pierced. Now, my mother had just told me <laughs> a couple weeks before when I had asked her to get my ears pierced for my birthday. I was nine. She said no, but I convinced my dad uh, to let me get my ears pierced. Um, I just somehow knew that, and I manipulated him. I, I played on his guilt, and I heard arguments between my parents. My mom would talk about if you just would stop drinking, and my father's usual response always was, but you just don't understand. And I want to tell you that today I know so much more about the disease of alcoholism and how it affects me and how it affects the alcoholic, but I am not an alcoholic, and I'm never fully going to understand um, the illness of the, of, for the alcoholic. When Carl gets up here a little later and starts talking, he's going to say some things and a bunch of alcoholic heads are going to start shaking in the audience and I'm going to think, nope, I don't get it. I'm just not going to get it. I'm not an alcoholic. Um, and I've known that. I've always known that. I've known some Al-Anon members who maybe question their drinking. I never have. I know that I'm not an alcoholic. Um, my father was a very loving, attentive man. Um, but alcoholism began to take that over. Um, he became, at times, very mean, um, just not a nice person to be around. And some of the things my older brothers and sisters would talk about is that my father would, would go away from the home and drink. He would go to the bar. He would just go out. He didn't do that when I was born and, and had come along. My father drank at home. Um, and I don't know if that's good or bad, uh, but he drank at home. And... There were many, many mornings I remember him waking up and he would shake. I mean, he literally was shaken. And he had a bottle hidden in the bathroom, and that was the first place he would go when he got up in the morning. He'd come out of the bathroom and he wouldn't be shaken. Now, if I would take a drink of alcohol in the morning, it would make me shake. Um, you know, that's what the illness was doing to him. I mean, he would wake up shaking and alcohol somehow would take those shakes away. I don't get that. I'm never fully going to get that. But it did that for him. Um, one thing I want to tell you, too, is in this program, in both our programs, we hear some horrendous stories about what people grew up with, where they grew up, how they grew up. Even though I grew up with active alcoholism and there were some real ugly things that I saw growing up, I am one of the lucky ones. I have a mother who has always been probably the rock of our family, and she will be until the day that she dies. My mother provided our family with so much stability um, I grew up in the same house. I went to one grade school, one high school. We went to Sunday school and church every week. Um, I had chores to do at home. You know, I had to get my homework done before I could watch TV at night. Um, in high school, I had a curfew. My mom needed to know where I was going to be, who was I going to be with. Um, my mom provided that. You know, we had supper every night about the same time. And I've heard so many stories in this program where people didn't have that, and I did. And I didn't really realize any of that until I became an adult. Um, I had it good growing up. You know, even though we had this, this alcoholic who would create chaos periodically, um, I had it good. And one thing that when I, whenever I talk about my mom at this particular time, the word dysfunctional always comes into my mind. And I want to tell you that I do not believe that any alcoholic family is dysfunctional. I believe that we are a functioning family. I mean, you do the best that you can with what you have at the time. Some people have a little more that they can deal with, um, maybe a little bit better coping skills than others, but you do the best that you can with what you have at the time. And I am uh, so grateful that I had a mother who had uh, really good coping skills. 
Um, she was able to cope with the act of alcoholism and also raise a family. Um, even though I had that stability, um, I had a love-hate relationship with my father. I loved him when he was sober and I hated him when he drank. Um, I have very much the same characteristics as the daughter of an alcoholic that the, that the wife of an alcoholic would have. Um, you know, I hear spouses many times talk about that their drive home from work, they'd start to get that knot in their stomach, you know, like, what am I going to come home to? I had that knot in my stomach when I would walk home from school. You know, what am I going to come home to? Um, my mother had that driving home from work. What is she going to come home to? I paced the floor at night looking out the window, the door, watching for car lights to come down the street. My mother did that. Um, and I would always pray that God would bring him home safely, that he wouldn't, you know, hurt himself or anybody else while he was out on the road drunk. And as soon as he would pull up, there'd be this tremendous sense of relief, you know, he's home. And I can remember a few times peeking out the window just to make sure that there might not be um, a body, you know, maybe attached to the grill of his car. You know, I had really morbid thoughts. Um, but then he would get out of the car, and he would be so drunk that he would crawl from the car into the house, and my emotions would change immediately. I would go from being so grateful that he was home to... Um, USOB, you know, that was my thoughts, and I would be thoroughly disgusted with him. I mean, how dare he crawl, and he couldn't even crawl straight. I mean, he would stagger crawling, you know, I mean, he, he was drunk. Um, my father, in, in the so many years that he drank, he got picked up once for drunken driving, and his alcohol level was .38, and when the officer called my mom to, to tell him, or tell her, you know, he's in jail, and da-da-da, um, he, he told my mother over the phone, I can't believe this man's alive. And he got picked up for that uh, drunken driving charge about five years before he got sober. Um, there were many times, too, that I wished him dead. You know, the problem would be gone if he would be gone. And my father had an accident on the job one time when I was 10. He had half of his right foot cut off in a grain auger. And, and he was three sheets to the wind when that accident happened. And he was pretty lucky. Um, he could have could have lost his whole leg, he could have lost his life, and he, he was lucky with that accident. Um, and the, time, the accident happened in a town, it was like about four hours from where we lived, and I didn't get to see my dad for a few weeks until I got transferred to a hospital closer to home. And in that two-week period, I had these awful, awful nightmares that he died. And people in my dreams were telling me that he wouldn't have died unless I first would have wished him dead. And I felt tremendous guilt for a 10-year-old child. I, it was awful awful those dreams that I had and he was in the hospital for a very long time and when he came home I was at my father's beck and call you know whatever he needed he got immediately whatever it was and and at the time I didn't know what I was doing but in Al-Anon when I did a fourth and fifth step I realized what I was doing at that time was trying to ease my own guilt um, my father also didn't drink during that time he was home for a couple months before he was ever able to go back to work and he was on crutches and they told him he probably might not ever walk again and he's an alcoholic and he was defiant and he said watch me and you know I, I watched him at home basically teach himself how to walk again um, and, he, and he wasn't drinking um, and the first time that he was actually able to uh, get out and get in the car and drive I knew where he was going I stood in the middle of the street and watched him drive down the street through a floor box and he turned left and I knew he was going to the liquor store. You went through a floor box, I think it was about four blocks down the street and you turned left and there was the liquor store. I knew where he was going and as soon as his car turned, turned left, um, I had awful, awful thoughts about him. Again, once again, I had just been making that bargain with God a few months earlier. 
Just don't let him die. I'll never do this again. I'll never wish bad things upon him again. Um, And here I was, doing it again. Um, What I also learned later as an adult was during that time he was home from the hospital, he may not have been drinking, but he did have an open prescription to Valium. So, you know, it was giving him the same effect. Um, I also didn't understand as a child that for an alcoholic to ease the pain, what are they going to go do? They're going to go drink. I didn't understand that. Um, And I wished... I said awful, awful things to my dad as I grew up, especially when I was a teenager. I had a couple bad years with my dad where I I was so angry with him for drinking, so angry with him. This is a self-will thing. If you really want to, you could. Um, And it took me a long time to get over that idea that it's not an illness, that that it is an illness, that it's not self-will. It took me a long time to figure that out, to finally accept that. I had been told that over and over again by lots and lots of people. I just didn't accept it. Um, One other thing that I did as a child that I'm not uh, too happy to admit to you, but it is part of my story. I didn't always blame my father um, for what was going on in our home. Uh, My dad's parents lived about 10 miles from us, and they were the source of the problem. Uh, My dad's parents never liked my mom. They never really liked any of us kids. You know, I heard stories all my life about if my dad never would have married. Um, you know, his life would have been so much better. And, and I, I developed some uh, real strong resentments toward my grandparents, especially my grandfather. Um, my grandfather didn't come too often to the house, but when he did, I, and this is something else I don't ever remember being told, but I would just, like, disappear. I would go to the park, I'd go to my room, I'd go outside. I just would disappear when my grandfather would show up. So I never knew what my dad and him talked about, never knew what they talked about. But when he would leave, my father became a completely different person. He truly was like a beast. Those are the only times I ever remember being frightened of my father and what he physically might be capable of doing is after his father came to visit. Um, and, And I, as a child, associated my father's behavior with my grandfather coming to visit him. That that was an easy thing for me to do. If he just wouldn't come here, things would be a little bit better. And I blamed him. I hated him hated my grandfather. Um, I learned as I got older, my father began to tell me some really uh, horrendous stories about his childhood. Um, If you would do those things to your child today, you would be thrown in prison for the rest of your life. My father grew up in an extremely abusive home. Horrible, horrible things. And when his father would come around, it would just bring all that stuff to the surface for my dad. And when he would leave, the only way my dad knew how to deal with that was to explode and then go drink. But I blamed my grandfather for that. And I was 16 when my grandfather died, and I can tell you that I could have danced on his grave. I was so happy that man was dead, happy that he was dead. Um, What I didn't realize is that it was not going to solve the problem. My father still drank after that for a few more years. That was one of the things that I had to get rid of in Al-Anon, is even though my grandfather had been dead for a few years, I I was still carrying that hate for him and I had to get rid of that. I had to realize that even though my father or my grandfather never said he was an alcoholic, he walked and talked like a duck, so he was probably a duck. And unfortunately he was never able to find this program like like us here in the room have. Um, He was a sick man. But I didn't know that then. My mother began to go to Al-Anon when I was about 10 years old. And after one of the first Al-Anon meetings that she went to, she came home and told me that my father had a disease called alcoholism. And she described it to me very much like someone who would be a diabetic, um, that it's not the person you hate, it's the illness that you hate. They're sick. 
And if they were a diabetic, you wouldn't hate them just because they're a diabetic. I mean, you shouldn't hate him just because he's an alcoholic. Um, and that stuck with me. I struggled with that thought for a long, long time that it is an illness, that he should just be able to do this if he really wanted to. And during those times that my father would come home from treatment and he would be sober for a period of time, he went to AA. I knew that he knew how to stay sober, so how come you can't? Um, I began to go to Alateen then, not too long after that. Um, I remember that it was the first week of May, and I was only about 11 years old when I first started going to Alateen. And I wasn't sure, you know, who's going to be there, what these people are going to talk about. I really didn't even know what I was going to. My mother just kind of told me what it was, and so I went. Um, after that first meeting, though, I knew I was coming back. The kids in that room, there was about 25 kids in my first Alateen meeting, and those kids talked about themselves and their families, but it was as if they were talking about me and my family. I couldn't figure out how these people knew. It's like, did somebody tell you, or have you guys been living in our closets? I mean, I really did not think that other people lived the way that we did at times. You know, from the outside, our family probably appeared just like everybody else in the neighborhood, you know? an okay family, but you didn't live inside the home. What I found out later, too, is that there were some neighbors down the street who had the same thing going on in their home that we did, but, you know, I didn't know that. Um, I was hooked right from my first Alateen meeting, and I continued to go regularly for the next six years. And I got so much out of the Alateen program. And the reason I did is because we had a sponsor for four out of those six years that was an absolutely wonderful woman. She was a very strong Al-Anon member. And I want to tell you that if I heard earlier today in the assemblies about um, some Alateen groups in Wyoming, and one of the things I want to tell you is that if you do know of an Alateen group, uh, if you're an, a sponsor of an Alateen group, please make sure that that sponsor is an Al-Anon member. And I don't mean just that they say that they're an Al-Anon member, that that sponsor is going to an Al-Anon meeting themselves. Um, our service manual talks about that, that an Al-Anon or that an Alateen sponsor needs to be an active Al-Anon member. Um, it's so important for those kids to have someone who knows something about the program. Um, they need that guidance. And the Alateen sponsor that we had, um, her husband used to call her a black belt Alanon, and I'm not quite sure what that means, but she was a wonderful, wonderful lady. She talked to us in those meetings. The first couple of years in Alateen, we kind of had these sponsors that were in and out. But after this woman, her name was Dottie, after Dottie came on as our Alateen sponsor, our meeting completely began to change. Um, we started opening very much like what Madge did tonight. There was, uh, you know, the, with the serenity prayer, the opening, we did steps and traditions. We had a topic that we went around the, mean, the room and discussed. We had a GR for our Alateen meeting. We had business meetings. Um, she definitely believed in structure and consistency and I know that that helped me tremendously I didn't know that at the time but I know that that helped me that consistency in that Alateen meeting helped me um, we talked about the steps we talked about putting the focus on yourself um, talked about the slogans you know when the alcoholic in your life is drinking how do you learn not to react to that she was instrumental in helping me learn so many of the principles that we have in this program um, and Dottie passed away in uh, July of 1992, and uh, she had cancer all over her body. And by the time I was able to go visit with her, she was pretty close to, to being near death. And when I went to the hospital, her husband told me that she was getting to a point that she might, that she might not recognize you. She was beginning to not even recognize her own family members. But 
Um, by God's grace, the night that I went to visit her, Dottie was uh, pretty coherent that night, and she knew who I was when I came in the room. And when I got in there, she said, come over here and sit down by the bed. And she said she had a couple things to tell me. First of all, that I was not to feel sorry for her that she was going home to be with God. And secondly, that I was to remember all those things that she had taught me. And that if ever, ever I was in an Al-Anon meeting at an Al-Anon function of any kind and I could see that the traditions or that our principles were being broken, that I needed to have enough courage to stand up and say something. She also told me to listen to the sponsor that I had at that time who I still have. She said, Zelda is a wonderful woman and she'll teach you well. And she said, you go and be with her. Um, She was a wonderful, wonderful lady. Um, throughout this time, my father is drinking, and it's, it's getting bad. His alcoholism is progressing. Um, not only did I watch him crawl into the home, um, I watched my father go through the DTs on our living room floor. I watched him over and over again have those uncontrollable shakes. And not just when he'd wake up in the morning. You know, there'd be times he just would be sitting at the kitchen table. He'd be sitting, you know, in the living room, and all of a sudden he would just begin to shake. And... As family members, you get to a point when the alcoholism is progressing so much that you just kind of watch it and then you go on. You know, it no longer becomes a crisis. It was like, oh, okay, you got the shakes, big deal. And then you just go about doing whatever you're doing. Um, One time, too, that I remember, um, my father asked me one morning what day it was. And I told him, you know, what day it was. And he said, no, what day of the month is it? And, And I told him that. Um, now, he was able to look at the calendar and actually see what month, you know, the calendar was on, but he didn't know, you know, wh- where in the month we even were. And I remember that morning then later going to school thinking how much courage that, had, that he had to have to ask me that, that morning. And periodically I would get these inklings of, of inspiration about that this must not be self-will. You know, there has to be something different to this. But I didn't want to accept that. I would have that thought, and then I'd think, no, if he really wanted to, he could. I graduated from high school and moved to Lincoln. Uh, The small town I grew up in is in eastern Nebraska, and we were only about an hour from Lincoln. I had older brothers and sisters who lived there. I just knew by the time I was a freshman in high school that that's where I was going to go to college, was in Lincoln. I moved to Lincoln. Um, I was very familiar with area assemblies. Uh, my mother became a GR of her Al-Anon group uh, very early on in her Al-Anon beginning, and uh, my mother got involved in service right from the start. And so she, when she would go out to these area assemblies, I would go along with her. And so I, I began to learn at a very tender age the Al-Anon structure, the service work, um, what an assembly is, what AWSC is. You know, I began to learn all that stuff at 12, 13 years old. Um, and I was the GR of my Alateen group for a three-year period. When I moved to Lincoln, there was an Al-Anon lady that lived in Lincoln that I knew from the area assemblies that my mother kept hounding me about calling. Call her. And I kept saying, yeah, I will. And for the, the summer that I was, right after I graduated from high school, I went to Al-Anon meetings kind of sporadically. I just kind of had the idea I'm away from the alcoholic. You know, I don't have a problem. By the end of the summer, before I started college that fall, I was, I was worse than I was living with him and I had the thought it's me you know it's not him Um, I didn't tell that to anybody for a long time but I at least said it to myself and um, Zelda came and picked me up and I began to go to three Al-Anon meetings a week and one open AA speaker meeting a week with Zelda Um, 
Sponsorship has been the greatest gift for me in Al-Anon. I could not have done the things that I've done in Al-Anon if it would not have been for a sponsor. It has been because of Zelda that I was able to do those steps. And Zelda didn't just say, do the steps, Bev, and, and we'll talk when you're done. We went through them together one by one. And Zelda had already done the steps herself several times over. And so she was able to share her experience with me about what she did with step one, what she did with step six. And step seven I had some difficulty with. And she said, then maybe we haven't done step six thorough enough. So we went back. You know, I'm so grateful for that, that I, had a, that I do have a very strong sponsor. Um, you know, it's been through that steps that I was able to develop a relationship with God. And one night, driving to a meeting, Zelda asked me what I thought about God. And last night at the al meeting, there was a lady that made a comment about um, the topic of the meeting last night was turning things over. And she made a comment about it's not that she never had trouble believing in a God, it was trusting in God is what her difficulty was. And I thought, that, that's it. Um, I always knew there was a God. Always knew that. Um, but I, I didn't always believe that he was going to be there for me. Um, and there were even times that I thought he was a punishing God for the things that was happening in our family, particularly when I was um, 16 years old. Just a couple months before my grandfather died, I had a three-and-a-half-year-old nephew who was killed in a farm accident, and the pain that my brother and sister-in-law went through that I had to watch them go through was absolutely horrible, horrible. And, and I was not happy with God at that time. How could you do this? How could you do this? And I even remember having a thought, why didn't you take him? Why didn't you take the alcoholic instead of this innocent, innocent child? Um, my father's drinking at that time was, was getting extremely bad, really bad. But sponsorship has been the greatest gift for me. Um, one night in the car driving to the meeting, she asked me what I thought about God, and I said, well, told her some things, and she said, what would you like God to be? And I said, I'd like him to be a loving and forgiving God, and she said, then he can be that. How simple is that? I never would have figured that out on my own. I needed that sponsor. I needed someone who would just take my hand and say, Bev, come with me and do what I do and your life will get better. And that was actually a lie because my life just didn't get better. My life completely began to change. I just followed in her footsteps. I just did whatever she did. And I continue to do that today. I just watch her and do what she does and things seem to get better for me. Um, she's also somewhat of a hard sponsor. She has a rule, not just with me, but with the other people that she sponsors, that you don't talk about the same subject three times unless you've done something about it. You know, you talk about it initially, and she'll give you some suggestions, and then you go a second time and talk to her about the same thing, and she'll ask you, have you done whatever it is we talked about? And you say no, and she say, go do that first. If you come to her a third time and you haven't done anything about it, she completely refuses to talk to you about it. She will either hang up the phone on you, she'll walk off, she just, you know, she won't even discuss it anymore. And I know that that's love. I've needed somebody who would just kick me in the butt and say, go do it. Um... If all she would have done is just patted me on the back and say, oh, everything will get better, I'll just love you, that would have killed me. And the type of love that I needed was that hard-hearted sponsor who would just say, go do it. Trust me and go do it. Because obviously some of the actions that I had done had gotten to me a point of misery. And, and so I needed um, someone to, to guide me and direct me. And, and she is an absolutely wonderful woman. And when we moved to Imperial three and a half years ago, I had someone ask me who I was going to get as a sponsor now. And I was somewhat um, confused by that question. And I said, what do you mean? And this individual said, well, you know, you need to get a sponsor that's close to you. And I said, no, I don't. 
I said, I can call her once a week, and I see her at our area assemblies, and I have a few other opportunities throughout the year to see her. I'm not giving her up until she dies or I dies. Um, she has been the most wonderful person for me. Her husband is in AA, and he has also been um, someone that I have sought out information from, sought out guidance. Um, he's been just as much as an, inst- um, an instrument in my life as she has. That open AA speaker meeting that I began to go to every week was uh, another thing that was instrumental in my recovery. Um, Every week I'm beginning to listen to either one or two alcoholics tell their story every week, and they would begin to talk about things like that they felt guilty for drinking. They felt guilty for disappointing their family. Um, They began to describe the reasons that they drank or the reasons that they thought they drank, that when they woke up in the morning their intentions were not to drink. At noon they began to think about drinking, and by 5 o'clock they were drunk. They don't know how that happened. Um, The longer I began to hear that, the more I began to think, I wonder if my alcoholic thinks that way. You know, I needed other alcoholics to help me understand the alcoholic in my life. I got to a point with my own father where anything he said, I just didn't even listen. Um, Just so angry and disgusted with him. Um, My freshman year in college, more towards the end, towards the spring, we were just about out. Actually, we were out. It was in the summer of 1988. I went home for some reason on a Sunday, and probably the reason I went home was to do laundry, probably get some money, needed some food, you know, all those things that college kids go home to do. Um, And I had not been home for a while because it had been painful to go home and see him. Um, I had, you know, talked with my mom on the phone, kept in touch with her, but I hadn't been home, and I was only an hour from where my parents lived. But I went home on this Sunday afternoon, and I believe that on that day God gave me uh, an awakening. Um, I came into that house and was standing at the kitchen table talking to my mother, and my father came into the room, and I will never, ever in my life forget what he looked like that day. Um, my, da- my father was 59 at that time, and alcoholism was, was killing him. That drinking pattern that he had had of drinking and stopping and drinking and stopping was definitely going to quit. He was dying from alcoholism. And his, his skin was white as chalk, but at the same time it kind of had that yellow-looking undertone. Um, His eyes were like a couple of black holes with red rings around him. His cheekbones were sticking out. The hollows of his cheeks were a corpse. He could not have weighed more than 110 pounds soaking wet. Um, It was an awful experience to to see him that day. However, um, what happened to me that day was that I know when I looked at him that day, I no longer had that overwhelming feeling of disgust. I no longer had the first thought, you SOB. I was able to look at him and know that he was a sick and dying man. Um, That was a gift. God gave me that gift. That was a spiritual awakening that I had that day. I cried the whole way home to Lincoln. And the first place I knew to go when I got into town was to Mark and Zelda's. Where else am I going to go? And I'll never forget what Zelda told me that day. She said, Bev, never give up hope. God creates miracles. And I clung to that hope for the next few months. I did not pray for sobriety, and I did not pray for his death. I prayed um, for God to do what was best for Dad, and that I would accept whatever decision he had. I knew that if he granted him sobriety, that I was going to love and support that man 200%, and that if he died, I knew that his misery, misery would be over, and then he would be at peace. On November 14th of 1988, my mother called me. Um, my father had woke up that morning and said, I want to go to the hospital. 
and they went to a hospital in Lincoln. And she called me from the hospital, and I said, I'll be there in a few minutes. And when I hung up the phone, I got on my knees and said thank you because I knew that sobriety had come. I knew that this, that this was going to be okay. Now, I want to tell you, when I got to the hospital, my father did not go into the treatment center at this hospital. He was checked into the hospital. He was in the ICU for a few days. The first night that he was there, the doctor told my mom and I that he wasn't quite sure he was going to make it through the night. My dad was in bad, bad shape. He was, he was near death. Um, and I was at peace. I knew that he was going to be okay. I knew that our family was going to have a chance to heal. I knew that. God gave me that because I... Most of the time when things like that happen, that's not how I am. And I'll let you know a little later about some of that stuff. I'm not at peace. I'm very much um, uh, nervous and worried and think the worst is going to happen. I did not think that that night. I knew that he was going to be okay. And he was in the ICU only for a couple of days, and then he was in a regular room for a few days, and then he did go upstairs to the treatment center. Um, For the next five and a half years, I cannot even begin to tell you the changes that happened in not only in my father but in our family. Um, my father became the person that I always knew was there. Um, throughout my life I had seen glimpses of that father, um, that loving, attentive man. Um, but for the next five and a half years I was able to have that every single time I saw him. Um, one of the things that Zelda told me right after he got sober was, how long has it been since you told your dad that you loved him? And I said, I don't know couldn't even tell her when the last time I had done that. And she said, why don't you start to do that? The first time I told my dad that I loved him and gave him a kiss and a hug after he got sober, he was stiff as a board, stiff as a board. Um, He was real uncomfortable with that. And I know that at the time he didn't feel worthy of that. But I continued to do that. Every single time I talked to him on the phone, every single time I saw him, I gave him a kiss and a hug and said, I love you. Um, He grew to a point where he would hug you back a little bit and say me too and then his hugs got a little warmer and then it grew to a point where you could not even step in the same room with my father without him hollering at you where's my kiss you know that was an absolute gift from God Um, um, my brothers and sisters not just their relationship with my dad but my relationship with my brothers and sisters began to change also And that was not just because of my involvement in Al-Anon or my mother's involvement in Al-Anon. It is because of my father's sobriety. Um, Sobriety for the alcoholic does tremendous, amazing things. Um, It it is an absolute gift. Absolute gift. All those problems didn't happen overnight, and all those problems are not going to go away overnight, but it does happen. And I am so grateful that I was able to experience a few years of sobriety Um, We experienced many years of active alcoholism, but I'm so grateful that we had a chance to experience those years of sobriety. Some of the other things I learned in Al-Anon was that it's okay to be a caretaker. It is okay to take care of people. When it becomes a defect for me is when I take over for the alcoholic. Um, One of the other things we talked about in the Al-Anon meeting last night was detachment. And one of the things that I heard early on in an Al-Anon meeting was one lady said that she really struggled with detachment and what she needed to think of was the things that she attached herself to rather than trying to detach from people. That was much easier for me to think. I know exactly what I attach to. It's alcoholics. I know what I attach to. I've always, always been attracted to alcoholics. The young men that I was attracted to on the, at recess in grade school were kids that in, by the time we got to high school were drinkers, heavy, heavy drinkers. 
Um, I was attracted to girlfriends that drank. I was always the designated driver when I was in high school. I had about four or five girlfriends that I hung out with. Um, no matter which parent vehicle we had, I always had the keys. I always drove. I was always um, the, the good one in the group. Um, at a party one time, there was a, um, somebody who made a comment to one of my girlfriends that said, you know, your car's out there tonight, and you should go a little easy on that alcohol because you're driving. And she made the comment, oh, Bev's driving, and she'll, we can drink however much we want because Bev will always take care of us. Um, now, at the time, I needed those strokes. You know, I just patted myself on the back and said, aren't you such a good friend? But what I was doing was enabling them. I mean, I, I got them home. I got them in their pajamas. I got them in bed. You know, I did this with my girlfriends. Um, they never had to suffer any consequences for their drinking. I always enabled them. I covered up for them. Um, I helped them keep out of trouble. Always did that. But I learned in Allen that it's okay to bake cookies for somebody because it's their favorite kind of cookies. It's okay to do that. But I don't need to call in sick for them. I don't need to um, maybe alleviate some of their pain. I don't need to maybe call their boss and try and let them keep their job. I don't need to go visit with the police officer and, and say, could you go easy on them? I don't, that's then taking over for them. I learned that in Al-Anon. Um, some of the things I did first in Al-Anon was I took a hold of the slogans. Um, you know, I remember pasting up the slogans all over my apartment in my dorm room, you know, just as a reminder of, of the program, just to put that thought in my mind about easy does it, let go and let God. Um, Zelda is also someone who's involved heavily in service, and if you're going to be sponsored by Zelda, you're going to be in service. And um, I had, was already familiar with um, some of the service structure of Al-Anon, but she just just get right in there and do things. And I became the group representative for my Al-Anon group. I did lots and lots of things at our district, um, workshops that we had in the community I lived in. Um, we went to all kinds of conferences and conventions. I mean, just involved. Just get out and do things. And one of the things that Zelda and her husband talk about is that if you need to do the actions first and the feelings will follow later. Don't wait for the feeling to happen and then do the action. Because if I had to wait for the feeling to come to be willing to do something, I'd be waiting a long, long time. I need to go ahead and just put one foot in front of the other and just do it and the feeling will come later. Um, Zelda also talked to me about praying for people that I had resentments towards. And the first time she ever told me that, I, I thought I didn't hear her correctly. And I asked her to repeat herself. And that's exactly what she said. She said, Bev, I guarantee you that if you pray for this person every single day, if you pray that God gives them everything they deserve, good and bad. Now, I like that. I really enjoyed that one about everything they deserve, good and bad. If you do that every single day, God will relieve you of your resentment. She said, I can't guarantee you a time limit, but if you do it every day, it will happen. So I just did it, because this was one of those things, too. If I continued to talk to her about this resentment, she wasn't going to visit with me about this until I started praying. Um, so I had to do that. And she was right. You know, the, the resentment went away eventually. Um, some of those resentments that I've prayed about seem to go away quickly, and others take longer. And I know that there must be a lesson for me, or God has something planned for me to learn that. Something to learn, because it's taking me a little longer to get rid of the resentment. Um, my relationship with God today is, is different than it was last year, different than it was 10 years ago. Um, it continues to change. Um, I can see that God definitely has a sense of humor, and I never used to see that. Um, just things that happen. Um, I can see that he has a sense of humor. I can see that he allows me to make my own choices sometimes, um, make mistakes, and that's okay, and, and that he's going to be there for me. Um, what I need to do, though, is let go of the control. 
let go of the illusion. We talked about that last night, too. Elute what control we think we have. It's an illusion of control. I need to let that go and just let God take charge. And, and everything's going to work out. It may not always work out the way that I have intended or the way that I've had it mapped out, but it is going to work out. And it's going to be the best all the way around. Um, one of the things else that I want to talk to you about, and I suppose I should be winding up here pretty soon, shouldn't I, Mitch? Um, and this, um, I've t- since um, March of 96, I've, I've talked uh, a few times, and so I have had to talk about this, but it isn't always easy. Um, actually, um, in the spring of 95, uh, my father drank again. After five and a half years of sobriety, he drank, and he only drank for just a, a few months. Um, have my own reasons why I think he did, but I- I'm not going to get into that. Um, I never really asked my dad what reasons he had for drinking again. Um, Never really felt the need to. Um, I can tell you some things, though, that happened with me about that. Um, I didn't immediately have the thought, you SOB, you know, look what you've done to us. My immediate thoughts were with him. How much guilt and shame and remorse that he had to feel. My focus was on him and his pain, not mine. And that was a gift from Al-Anon. Because in the past, whenever he drank, the focus was always on me. Look what you're doing to me. Look what you're doing to us. Um, But the focus was on him. Um, After that, um, you know, it was only a couple months that he drank. But after that, my dad's health began to fail very rapidly. His health shortly before he drank was not the greatest. He'd had throat cancer a few years before that, and he got through that okay. And um, just... Years of drinking and smoking were, were eventually catching up with him. And for him to drink again, um, I was telling Ren or yesterday or, or today, I can't remember when, I have heard recovering alcoholics talk about that no matter how long you've been sober, that if you drink again, it's as if you've been drinking the whole time that you've been sober. And I've never, never really understood that or got that until my father drank again after five and a half years of sobriety. He was near death when he got sober. And for him to drink again was um, bad. Mentally, he failed. Um, My father was one of those people that could tell you that you're going southwest or that you're going northeast, not that you're just going north. I mean, he had an incredible sense of direction. Um, He could remember, my father was a truck driver all of his life, and, you know, he could tell you what highways took you to Timbuktu. You know, he had incredible memory. Um... But after he drank again, he'd walk out of a department store and be totally disoriented. He couldn't remember where the car was. Um, and how frightening that had to be for him. Um, and his health just, just really began to deteriorate. And in October of last year, actually October of 95, I guess it was, um, my father had made several attempts to quit smoking, and it just wasn't working. And that was also declining his health. And he then began to need to use some oxygen. And I know after that... Um, he just really lost a will to live, um, just really didn't want to be around anymore. And, and that was painful to watch. Shortly after Joe and I moved to Imperial, I began to have this funeral dream. Um, I had a dream that my family's in the church that I grew up in. I can hear people singing. I can hear crying. Um, and this casket comes rolling down the center of the aisle, and I never, ever in my dream got to see who was in the casket, but I always, always knew I was dreaming about my father's funeral. I'm not here to tell you that I was psychic in any way. What I'm here to tell you is that God was beginning to prepare me. Um, 
He knew that my father's time was coming, and he was beginning to let me know that it's coming. It's coming a lot sooner, Bev, than you ever, ever have wanted. Um, and after I'd have that dream, I'd be real jumpy. Didn't like it when the phone rang. Um, d- just didn't like it. Then, in February of 1996, my father had to go into the hospital for some minor surgery. And I was real nervous about this surgery. Um, you know, it was just minor surgery. Um, and we had seen him just a couple days before the surgery, and, you know, I, I must have told my mother probably a dozen times over the weekend, you call me as soon as he's out of surgery and you know that he's okay. And she kept saying, yes, I will. Um, and she did. This surgery went fine. It was a breeze. No problem. He's only going to be in the hospital a couple days and he'll get to go home. Um, that's not what happened. Um, the part of his body that he'd had surgery on didn't um, begin to, to work right, uh, was taking longer than the doctors anticipated, and so, you know, they couldn't send him home if he wasn't doing well, so they had to keep him. Um, he developed pneumonia um, because he already at this point had some respiratory problems. He could not breathe with the pneumonia. He had to be put on a respirator. He had two strokes, um, and then his body just began to shut down. Um, just all of his internal organs just one by one began to go, and for 23 days he was in the hospital before he died. Um, the, the evening that he had to be taken, or the morning after he had had to be taken to the um, ICU, um, my mother had called, um, and I had to go to another town that day for a workshop for, for work, and I got about 20 miles out of town and turned around and said, I'm not going to this workshop. I want to go to Lincoln, to the hospital. And that's what I did. Um, and when I got there, I, I knew it was bad. Um, I knew that he was going to die. Did not want to admit that. And throughout the 23 days, my father had some up, some better days than bad days. And, and there would at times appear like maybe there was some hope. Um, but then it, it would just get worse. Something else would happen. And those 23 days was an absolutely awful experience. My mother and I literally lived at the hospital. We slept there. We ate there. Um, the The family room that we stayed in we were just uh within a few feet of him we could wake up in the middle of the night and go visit him you know go go touch him go talk to him um and because he was on a respirator uh, you know he couldn't talk to us but he, but he could communicate um you know every time i went in there i told him that i loved him and he would either squeeze my hand or he would reach up his hand and rub my face and and i knew that that was his way of telling me that he loved me um, that's one thing I regret is that I wasn't able to talk to him those last few days he was alive, to not hear his voice. Um, I do feel fortunate that Joe and I were able to be there the night he died. Um, the nurse came and woke us up in the middle of the night and said it's, you know, pretty close, and um, we were there. And even though the pain at that moment was beyond devastation, um, cannot even begin to tell you how much I loved my dad. Absolutely loved and adored him. In my eyes, that man could walk on water. And it wasn't because he'd lived this perfect life. It was because he'd had so many trials and sufferings, and he always seemed to come through them on the other side a better person and was grateful for those trials and sufferings. And he had a tremendous faith, a faith that I would like someday to have. Even though it was painful at the moment he died, it was still such a spiritual experience because you knew right now, right now as you're standing here, 
that process of him moving into heaven and being with God is happening as you're standing here and how wonderful that has to be for him. Um, but my pain was just uh, beginning to start. Uh, my father's death has been by far the worst thing, even worse than his active alcoholism has been. Um, the grief at times has been overwhelming. Um, I was 27 when my father died and he was 67 and that's, that's not what I had intended. I had intended to be 67 and he, you know, he could be in his 90s when he died. That was my intention. Um, but that, that's not the plan that God had and I have to accept that. 1996, that could have been enough to happen, but that's not what God had planned. Um, in May of 1996, less than two months after my father died, I had a sister-in-law who committed suicide. Uh, she left behind my brother and five children. And that has taken its toll. Uh, one significant death was enough, uh, let alone to have another one right on top of his. Um, my whole life, I've always, always thought that suicide is such a selfish act. And, and I still believe that. The pain that I have seen my brother and especially the children, my, my nephews, go through in this past year, um, it's a selfish act, selfish, selfish act. And I don't understand suicide just like I'm not going to understand alcoholism. Um, we've joked before in the past about Al-Anons aren't suicidal, they're homicidal. And, and that's me. I mean, I've always been much more get, get rid of you, you know, get rid of the alcoholic and the problem will be gone. I'm not going to hurt myself. I'm going to get rid of them. Um, so I've never understood suicide. I have never, ever in my life been so depressed, uh, so down in the dumps that I would, would get there. And I hope to God that I never get there. Um, I, I really don't know what was going on with my sister-in-law. Um, I was like seven or eight when her and my brother got married. Um, she had been a part of our family basically my whole life. And her death, too, has not been easy for me. You know, she was very much like a sister to me rather than, you know, my brother's wife. Um, so 1996 was not a good year. In fact, we were at um, some program friends' houses on New Year's Eve, and at midnight I went outside and, and let 1996 what I thought of it, you know, and told it where it could go because I was done. Um, 96 was a bad year, and I was happy that it was the new year. Um, Joe and I moved to Imperial in January of 1994, and... I had to look on the map to see where we were going. I mean, I grew up in eastern Nebraska. I had been in some parts of western Nebraska, but never Imperial. Um, we got there. We went to our first meeting, and the AA guy said the Al-Anon meeting is no longer going. And I thought, what have I gotten myself into? Um, I had come from a place where, you know, I was going to several Al-Anon meetings a week, and there was lots of people at the meetings. And to all of a sudden go someplace where there was no meeting at all, it was pretty frightening. Um, started the meeting up, began to have Deb, you know, uh, some other people in and out. Um, and it's been a struggle uh, to get people. I heard earlier today in the assembly, too, I'm glad other people have struggles with people with trying to get people involved in service, that it's not just a Nebraska issue. Wyoming has this problem, too. Um, trying to get people involved. And I, I can't tell people what it does for you. I can just tell them, that's what my sponsor told me to do, and I know when I did it, I began to feel better. And I want other people to experience that, but I, I would like to hog tie them and, you know, just take them with you, but you can't always do that. Um, we do have a couple coming to the meetings in Imperial. Um, the husband's in AA and the wife is in Al-Anon, and they have been a godsend. They have showed some enthusiasm. They're interested in going to events. They're interested in getting involved in service. And 
Um, it's been wonderful. It's and especially that there's a spouse in Al-Anon. For two and a half years while we were in Imperial, Joe and I would go to these activities and functions, and members of his district would show up, but no one from mine. I would be like the token Al-Anon out of the group, and I didn't like that. I wanted some you know Al-Anons of my own to be there, and now I do have one. And and she's even joked about that you know um, she can't say no to something because Bev won't let her. You know, and, and that's been kind of fun. I mean, I'm happy, g grateful to have um, the couple in the program that we do that we've become very good friends with, that we can do things with and, and go to functions and activities with. Wren asked me yesterday, and Barry and Wren are from Nebraska, and they came just to hear Joe and I speak. <laughs> um, we've had a lot of fun with them this weekend. Um, Wren asked me earlier how I met Joe and um, my parents in fact knew him before I did uh, and I saw him in a meeting one night and asked my dad who he was and he told me his name and that he was married and so okay that was alright for the next couple of years whenever Joe and I would see each other we would flirt with each other at these functions and activities but that's as far as it went uh, then I saw him in an activity and my mother came up to me and said did I tell you he was getting a divorce and that's that's pretty much um, how it started. Now Joe tomorrow will tell you a different story than I will, but he's the one who called. I didn't call him. Um, he will tell you that I pursued the relationship and then he never had any choices or options, but that, that's not how it happened. Um, um, we moved to Imperial and we moved to Imperial and then we got married. Um, did things a little backwards. Um, and the minister that we have in Imperial really hounded us for a while about getting married and we said we are. Um, but he really, really wanted us to get married, and, and we did get married. Um, and that was somewhat in the beginning of a little bit of debate. Joe wanted to just have a real simple wedding, and I said, no, this is my first wedding and my only wedding that I ever planned, and I want to be Cinderella for a day, and I got to be Cinderella for a day. I even have um, a niece who's six now who was four at the time who, when she came in the bride room to, to tell me something or look at me, she goes, Aunt Bevy, you look like Cinderella. And I said, thank you. That's exactly what I'm going for. Um, so I got to be Cinderella for a day, and that's what I wanted. I also got to... Um, have the opportunity and the gift of having my father walk me down the aisle. There was a time in my life that I wasn't quite sure he was ever going to live long enough to do that for me. And I even thought, who am I going to ask if he does die? Um, and I, my, you know, I thought, my, I'll ask my oldest brother if my father's not around. But my father was around. God gave me that gift. And I'm so grateful for that. Um, I'm getting, running out of things to say. There is one thing um, that I always like to end with. Oh, and you even opened up the page. Thank you, Madge. Um, once again, I want to thank Craig and Deb for asking uh, us to speak. I have thoroughly enjoyed this weekend. Your assembly has been a lot of fun. I've um, had a lot of fun with Craig and Deb and Carly and Barry and Wren. Um, I'm not even going to get into what we were talking about tonight. Um, but we had a good time. Um, there's a paragraph in the pamphlet called Understanding Ourselves in Alcoholism. It's a black pamphlet. And I find it interesting that the pamphlet is called Understanding Alcoholism First, and then we get to understand ourselves. And that pamphlet is the one that I have in my service manual at home is tattered and torn. I absolutely love that pamphlet. It's my favorite pamphlet. And the last paragraph in that pamphlet is, is something that has, I've just always identified with, and that's something that I always like to close with, and so I'm going to read that. 
While we may have been driven to Al-Anon by the behavior of an alcoholic friend, spouse, or child, a brother, sister, or parent, we soon come to know that our own thinking has to change before we can make a new and successful approach to the problem of living. It is in Al-Anon that we learn to deal with our obsession, our anxiety, our anger, our denial, and our feelings of guilt. It is through the fellowship that we ease our emotional burdens by sharing our experience, strength, and hope with others. Little by little, we come to realize in our meetings that much of our discomfort comes from our own attitudes. We try to change these attitudes, learn about our responsibilities to ourselves, discover feelings of self-worth, love, and grow spiritually. The emphasis begins to be lifted from the alcoholic and placed where we do have some power over our own lives. Thank you. Thank you, Mary.